The following presentation from the Utah Open Source Conference held August 28th through 30th, 2008 is underwritten by the Utah Governor's Office of Economic Development with a mission to provide rich business resources for the creation, growth, and recruitment of companies to Utah. Goed.utah.gov Streaming and podcast hosting bandwidth for this and many other presentations at podcast.utos.org has been provided by Tier 4. The presentation entitled Open Source and Government was a panel with Pete Ashdown and Phil Windley, moderated by Jason Hall. you guys first off to say what you might have might see 
as current events in open source and our government and politics. So if you want to start maybe with Pete here. Um, first of all, I'd like to give a little refresher on, on my campaign because it's been almost two years um, since uh, election night. Um, when, I, when I started out, I didn't envision an open campaign. I didn't know what I envisioned. I was literally uh, thrown out into the water and expected to learn how to swim. Um, and when you run a, a campaign on a federal level, what you get are a lot of um, consultants from Washington, D.C., kind of circling the waters, um, trying to sell you their services with uh, cash up front, of course, uh, to help you figure out what you're supposed to do. Um, and I, I backed up, I didn't listen to any of them, and I, I kind of built a, a laundry list of, of what I wanted on a website. Um, first thing I wanted was a calendar so people could see what events were coming up and what I should be doing. Um, the second thing was, you know, setting up a mailing list. The uh, third thing was setting up uh, credit card processing to make it easy for people to donate money. And the fourth thing was a wiki because I used a wiki quite extensively uh, at X-Mission and documenting our policy and procedures. Um, we've since moved our uh, help pages that we give to our customers all online to a wiki. Um, it's, it's, it, was, uh, it was a much easier way for us to run a company um, documentation system rather than reprinting the employee manual on a yearly basis. Uh, to have it all online and where we could edit it and make changes and, and allow the employees to update policy and procedure as needed. So I thought a wiki would be a good organizing tool. And what happened is the wiki kind of uh, became the most important part of the website. Because um, running for office, you, you walk into it and you, you kind of feel like, at least I did, I felt like I had a uh, kind of a fuzzy area around me around certain policy topics. You know, do I really know much about uh, health care? Do I really know much about energy policy? Um, how do I find out more? And so I thought, well, what I'm going to do is put out my thoughts on these different policies on the wiki and then allow anyone who wants to come in and criticize or uh, put up their own thoughts and try and build some policies in an open fashion. Um, that idea uh, had never been tried before in a political, political campaign. There was always this brick wall between the electorate and the candidate, and the candidate and their advisors. Um, so there was quite a lot of attention that was directed towards my campaign um, because of that strategy. Um, but I've been disappointed that since, uh, I, uh, since the close of the campaign, uh, nobody else has really picked up on that. I haven't seen any other campaigns try and draft a policy and procedure uh, using wikis or in an open fashion. Uh, there's certainly been the YouTube debates where people can su submit questions openly, but it was still a very filtered process. Um, maybe if I had won the election, uh, there had been more invitation, but uh, I was hoping that it would be an example that could be carried on uh, by other candidates out there. And I haven't seen anybody this cycle that's doing it to that extent. Um, I, I, I think it's strictly a success strategy. If people look at success and want to imitate it, it's not a matter of people, a matter of candidates saying, um, I want to be as open as possible in my campaign and open as possible in my office, so I'm going to follow these strategies. Um, it, but it is funny, though, because I, I heard um, 
I think it was NPR, who collected a group of voters in um, Ohio. And they went down and ran down all the issues. They ran down all the issues like health care and the energy policies and the war and, and what was important to them. And time after time again, accountability was number one. Accountability came back, and that's what people wanted from their elected officials. I think everyone in this room, regardless of your political party, can agree that we want accountability from the people we send back to Washington. We want accountability from people we send to the state house. We want accountability in our cities. And I think using uh, wikis and calendaring and open scheduling and um, open meeting policies on the Internet is a great way to bring us that accountability. Um, it's just going to be a little slower than I thought. The other thing is I think uh, a lot of candidates look to the Internet as uh, a real goldmine for harvesting donations from all over the Internet and from all over the uh, world, for that matter. I, on, a, on a federal basis, you can't take donations outside of the United States from non-American citizens, but you could take them from uh, uh, Americans living abroad. Um, so the Internet is viewed by a lot of candidates as this real goldmine. I think if you're a presidential candidate, it probably is. But if you're any other kind of candidate, it's still a very hard, raising, hard, hard proposition to raise money on the Internet. Um, out of the $200,000 I raised for my Senate campaign, um, about a third of that came off of the Internet. The rest of it came off face-to-face -face meetings, phone calls, and um, functions. So I think the, the Internet at this stage is a lot like um, uh, television was in the early 50s, where people knew this was going to be a force for uh, politics in the future, but they really hadn't gotten their minds around how to reach everybody through it. Yeah, they're mostly, probably on average about 75. But my, the question was asked about my internet contribution site. So the, the, the average donation is about $75. Um, I'd probably say the most I got off the internet was uh, probably a $1,000 donation. But those were few and far between. So one thing I picked up was right at the beginning, you mentioned that the parallel of starting your campaign was a lot like jumping into the water. You know, you got the shark swimming around not knowing what to do. And I, I, I kind of see that immediately in the open source world. A lot of times we jump into projects the same way, and that's what causes us to reach for, for new ways to, to solve problems. Do you think that there's any more parallels with that in terms of things you could do and how it, how it parallels the open source world? I think it comes back to specialties. I mean, there are people out there who understand driver creation. They understand um, different languages better than other people. And drawing them in on an open source project um, is uh, people are going to gravitate towards their specialty. Uh, in trying to come up with the best policies, I think uh, uh, farmers should be the ones being asked on agricultural policy, and scientists should be the ones being asked on energy policy. And uh, people who feel like they have a, uh, an issue, no matter what it is, the government is going to affect that in one way or another, unfortunately. 
and being given an avenue to um, speak their mind on that issue, uh, they're going to do that. Um, whenever an Internet-related bill comes up uh, at the Utah State Legislature, and to some extent the, the Federal Congress, um, I try and give my input on it because I know it affects what I do and what my business is. Um, but I, I, no, I don't know where to start with on a number of top, other topics, but, but giving those avenues and opening it up and asking for help, the help will come. Um, there also is um, the problem of uh, being lost with everyone else asking for help. I mean, if you start an open source project and it's, it's minor and nobody else is interested in it or you can't, you can't get the word out that people want it to, to attract contributors, um, the same thing can happen in government. But I think with, um, if the state, the state has been very good at putting on uh, the legislative bills and the drafts of bills up on the website, if they did something like a adding a commentary section um, to those bills, you would get an enormous amount of uh, contribution on that. Now, reading KSL.com and reading uh, SaltLakeTrib.com and some of the commentary that, that goes on there um, is a little disheartening because uh, I think the anonymous commentary really comes down pretty hard. Um, and, and doesn't always enlighten the discussion. Um, so I don't know if it, it would be a matter of you know, uh, non-anonymous contributions only on the, on the state website, but I think they at least should open it up a little. Maybe Phil can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. On that note, I guess the question is, um, how, how can you have an active wiki and deal with, deal with the management of the anonymous contributions? Um, when I first started my wiki in the campaign, it rolled on for about four months without any spam and without any vandalism. And then one day uh, after that, the I got hit by a number of vandals that were just it was an onslaught, and I was like there till 1 a.m. doing reversions and, and backing things out, and I thought, you know, I can't stay up all night doing this. I've got to go to uh, an event in the morning, so I locked it down. And after that point, um, we did have to use a registration system where you'd register and you'd, ask, you'd send an email to the staff and ask us to grant you permission. Um, I, that was unfortunate that we had to do that because it really did slow down the contributions. Um, but I look at something like Wikipedia, where they have such an army of maintainers that it's hard for the vandals to get through that and think that if, if the government did um, put up a central uh, wiki that you would also get an, a, another army of maintainers to keep it proper. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have to. <laughs> um, I have, and um, I, I, I went back to my business after the campaign, and, and there was a lot of work to be done there. 
but it's, it's still something that rides on my mind that I would like to document. So one of the things I said during the campaign um, was uh, I'm, not, I'm not only here to run for what I think is a very poorly managed office, I'm here to inspire other people to run. Because if you look at the makeup of um, our representation in Washington, it's uh, career politicians and a lot of attorneys and, and very little else. Um, you know, I think we should have mothers and firemen and service people and, and a whole spectrum of, of America representing America. ISP owners. <laughs> well, and, you know, think about it. Who, who can you look at in the Congress, the Federal Congress, that really understands technology? I, yeah. <laughs> well, Senator Stevens. <laughs> Just a bunch of tubes. Yeah, so I, 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 we need to have better representation in Congress of the American populace, and the way we get that is inspiring people to, to run. Um, what I got when I ran was this peek behind the wizard's curtain where I realized that this really is not something you need to climb the ladder for. Anyone can do it. Um, and I, look at some of, I looked at some of the other campaigns that were out there, and we were passing them in leaps and bounds, and we didn't know what we were doing. So I, uh, I think, yeah, how-to is something on the, on the future slate. I would love to write a larger document about the whole idea of democracy and um, technology and, and what, how that will revitalize democracy, in my opinion. All right. Well, you, you mentioned a couple of the tools that were really important. You know, the, the wiki was really important to you, and then the, the concept of maybe future uh, commentary. But I think the, the anonymous comments probably spike something over here with the whole identity. I know Phil would love to talk about identity a bit. But here, we'll turn the time over a little bit to him if you know any other tools you might think of. My, um, my favorite, or the thing I think of first when someone mentions open source and government is a meeting that we had in 2001 in preparation for the Olympics. Uh, one of the things that we were quite concerned about, um, and not unduly concerned, I don't think, was that with the increased attention that Utah was going to gather, we would become the victim of more attacks than normal. I mean, every large website is the subject of multiple attacks. We wanted to make sure we were prepared. And so we had a number of meetings. I kind of came into this. I kind of like became CIO, and they said, oh, there's all these meetings going on. You probably need to go to them. So I started going. Well, one series of meetings was about intrusion detection and what system should the state select for intrusion detection. And they were looking at vendors. And I remember we had a meeting where the, um, an SVP of AT&T came and was telling us all about you know, the intrusion detection services they can provide and all of this other stuff. And so we were in a kind of a executive session after all of this. And I looked at the guy who's running the thing and I said, so why don't we just use Snort? And he said, can we? And I said, why not? Yeah, you can. And so they did. Um, but the assumption was open source was not acceptable, right? That, that for whatever reason, I mean, they knew about Snort. They actually kind of wanted to use Snort, but they didn't believe that whatever powers that had been or were or were to be would find that acceptable. 
Uh, because it was a free tool, you know, so it was looked on as you know maybe not good enough because it's free or what. So I think that there's a lesson there when it comes to open source and government is that often uh, the question about open source and government comes down to can we? And if somebody is actively evangelizing and saying yeah it's okay, there probably would be more open source in government. Now you know the the state. Um, is a big place, and there are all kinds of things. There's, you know, thousands of Linux servers. There's also thousands of Windows servers, and you know, heck, there's probably even uh, some OS2 servers sitting under a desk somewhere. Uh, you know, there's mainframes uh, and and everything else. So, so, so you're certainly going to find a lot of open source if you go look at government. You're also going to find a lot of um, a, a lot of proprietary code, and sometimes that's because in the way that things are done, the idea is we want to buy something and put it in and use it. Right? We don't want to do research and think about it and not be pejorative. I just mean that those people aren't there. Right? There just is not a group of programmers in certain areas where they're going to go off and, and figure this all out and build an architecture. What they want to do is they want to go buy a system, put it in, and use it. Right? You're probably not going to find any state very soon building an open source finance project for the state. Right? They're just going to go buy SAP or something and use it because it, it's, it's there. Um, but there are a lot of opportunities inside government for using open source. Um, on the kind of the, the theme that Pete got on about um, transparency as a form of almost open source in government. Um, I think people in this room, I'm assuming almost all of you are from Utah. I know there's a few people from Idaho. Um, but you ought to be thankful that you live in Utah because we actually have a pretty good legislative system in terms of its transparency. Uh, as Pete mentioned, when you go to the state website, um, go to the state legislative website, you can find all the bills, you can find all the revisions, you can find the uh, calendar of events for every committee. You can find the audio for the meeting after it took place. You can find transcripts of the audio. You can see video. Uh, the Senate, at least the majority, um, blogs fairly regularly. That is not the case. right? If you think that this is like normal, it's not. Most states don't have anything like that. And, and so we actually are fairly blessed. Uh, there are other things, as, as Pete mentioned, you know, that could be more citizen involvement, uh, of ways for citizens to be involved. We actually are in a pretty good state in terms of how that transparency takes place. Uh, unfortunately, we're not in a similar situation with our federal government. Uh, part of that is because it's got a lot more moving parts, um, but also because there are a lot of people who would just soon not be transparent. And speaking as somebody who has been in a fairly public position in an administration. On the other side of this, transparency really sucks. <laughs> Not that it's bad or that you think, wow, democracy doesn't need transparency, but it's really, really hard to do business in a transparent environment. It's, it makes things slower, it's less efficient, and as humans, all of us hate that, right? So, so you'll find people 
kind of battling against it, not necessarily because they're evil or they have malicious intent, but because it really makes their life hard. And that's especially true in a media environment where every decision that you make comes down to a question of how is this going to be reported tonight at 10 o'clock. Um, and that is always a major factor. And you might say, well, it shouldn't be. Well, believe me, it, it, you wouldn't last very long in office if it wasn't. Um, our government, every government official I know of takes that into account. That's what they think about. It's morning, noon, and night. What's the press going to say about this? And as you know, the press is not necessarily fair, accurate, or um, get, you know, or, or kind. They they can be they're vicious. Um, you know, if they have four thousand words to write before tonight at uh, six o'clock, and they've got kids to pick up from soccer, just like you, and so they get the job done. So uh, transparency is really hard. And so I'm not saying don't do transparency. What I'm saying is we have to be really vigilant, and we have to also look at the motives of people, and rather than just jumping to the, the worst-case scenario that somebody is being non-transparent because they're trying to hide the money that they took from Zion's bank or something. I'm not, Zion's doesn't give bribes, to my knowledge. But um, you know, it's usually because it just makes their life really hard. Um, what I would, one thing I would suggest to you is there is a thing called Change Congress. You just go Google Change Congress. Uh, it is Larry Lessig's um, kind of follow-on to Creative Commons. And it's about what things can we do to make Congress more transparent, more open, and more accountable, as Pete said, um, and able to listen to the right kinds of advice. Uh, you know, Larry, who is probably um, on the opposite side of the political spectrum from me, uh, happened to agree on a lot of things. And one of those is that, as I said, people are not necessarily evil, crooks, or malicious but they live in an environment that causes them to behave in ways which is probably not good for democracy. And that environment is one we, as the American people, have allowed to grow up. Um, Change Congress basically has four ideas that it wants people in Congress to pledge to. Um, the first one, I mean, well, I shouldn't say first because I'm not going to get them in the right order, but um, one is to fundamentally reform the earmarking system, which allows portions of the budget to be spent on specific things that a congressional uh, or a congressperson decides it should be spent on. Now, there's some give and take there because um, it's a complex issue, but nevertheless, the earmark system causes bad decisions to be made. Um, more transparency is kind of a catch-all, but that's one of the principles. Uh, you know, we can all see what kind of bills are put forth. We can all see how people voted on. We can't necessarily hear all of the conversations that took place about them or what, what um, other information went into the bill, who influenced the bill, who wrote the bill, all of those kinds of, uh, all that kind of information is generally not available to us, particularly at the federal level. Um, another part of the Change Congress pledge is uh, to only have publicly financed elections. Now, you may not agree with that. You may have thought about this issue before and decided you don't think that's a good idea because of free speech issues or whatever. I would encourage you to read about it because I used to feel that there was a free speech issue involved too. 
and I've since changed my mind and decided that the free speech issue is overridden by our need to create a government where good decisions can be made. So I encourage you to look at that. Um, I've forgotten one, and I probably won't remember with the microphone in front of me. So go look at Change Congress, see, see what you think. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, one thing I would encourage you to do, because if we're talking about open source and government, one of the biggest problems of the metric for open source and government is just people don't necessarily know how, what, or whether they're allowed to do it. The place where you can have the most influence is your local government. Cities are almost um, begging for help. Uh, you can almost always get a, uh, an appointment with your city manager or the head of the planning commission. Uh, even in Salt Lake, uh, Salt Lake doesn't have a city manager, but you know, the, the, the same kinds of people. These people will meet with you. I don't think just because you're a geek that works in the data center down on 64th South or something that they won't talk to you. They will, and they want to know what you think about you know, issues in your city. They want to know what you think about technology. How could they improve their website? How could they make things more transparent? You know, are you willing to help? Are you willing to do something? Cities will welcome your involvement. And I believe that local change is probably the first and best change we can make in, in government because it, it's so um, easy to get in. They listen. Um, that the downside is they don't necessarily have all the resources they need, but that you can make a difference. Uh, in city, so pretty much feel. Yeah. Something with your um, past and your um, government, like Mrs. Lowe, that you want to get your expectations about like, how you're going to maintain it, or you're going to find to, you know, who else knows something about that? that not, not really, because the organization that was going to be doing it was the state central IT shop. At the time now, there's only one, but at that time, and they had about 250 people highly qualified, you know, network people, you know, people who understood security. There wasn't enough, um, what's the word I'm looking for, gravitas, I guess, in that group that I didn't have any concerns, but they'd be able to figure it out, run it, make it work. Now, they, they have a fully staffed knock, so, so that wasn't an issue. But yeah, it had been, um, you know, the two guys at the Department of Agriculture, you know, not that they're not bright, but there's only two of them, and they got a bunch of stuff to do, so they probably wouldn't have been able to do it. So that is yeah. an issue. Yeah, I and mean, then that's just like one small application. I mean, what if you're talking about like an enterprise-level application? Um, like in my case, my, my product, my company's product is entirely Microsoft, and that's one of the selling points is that, you know, Microsoft is a known product. You can maintain it. You know, you get resources to work on the system. Um, and you can find guys that can write code in .NET or whatever, and so that was one of the main products. Like, how would you go about? Do you have an example of like an enterprise level application that you're running in, in government? I can't think of any off the top of my head, but Bob might be able to tell us something. So, so Bob. Uh, Bob is giving example uh, for the microphone. Bob is giving examples of open source projects. Yeah, what, what's an example? So Linux, MySQL, PHP. Yeah. Get the thing that they have a social choke that we're going to have a conflict with 
Yeah, yeah. Close, close it. Have a bender, yeah. You have a bender and you get stuff stuff to get Yeah. Yeah, so so for the mic's benefit, what Bob said is that uh, people in government and I think this is true in a large enterprise too, often want a book choke. And so, you know, getting them to understand the concept of community and how that can work and how it can get you past the I want a vendor issue is important. One of the things that I think this question actually brings up um, is also the idea of training. If you want to bring open source into government, well, you're probably not just going to wholesale replace everything with open source in a week. You have to start off, you actually have to have a program. How are we going to do this? You have to think. How are we going to train people? Because you, you probably want people who are trained in you know, these kinds of, of uh, technologies before you just go put something that, that might be mission critical. Um, you, know, you can start with non-mission critical tools, let people kind of get up to speed and understand them. But I do believe it's, it's possible. Now at the state level, it's a little bit easier because the state has so many resources. Like, I don't know what the current number is, but when I was CIO, there were about um, 900 IT people in the state, you know, for 22,000 employees. You know, if you have 900 IT people, you probably can get things done. There's probably a couple of them that have programmed in PHP before. You know, there, there's kind of enough people that you can get something uh, and make it work. Like I said, if you're talking about individual departments, so if you get into a local city, you know, I live in the city of Linden, they don't have an IT department. Like they've got, you know, they outsource everything to some company somewhere, and so it's a little harder. Yeah, Bob? So, so it's an, uh, an application that kind of knits together yeah. some legacy employee HR payroll apps and... It wasn't me. It was a different CIO. And, and that's, what, that's, a, that's a better issue, as Bob points out, there's education goes both ways. But um, you, you, you need to educate people above that this is not going to be the end of the world. Right? The open source is not going to destroy our systems or get hacked or you know, whatever other fears they happen to have. The one thing that this discussion has kind of reminded me of that I wanted to make sure I brought up was you know, several years ago, you may recall this um, happening in the news, the CIO of the state of Utah, I'm sorry, the CIO of the state of Massachusetts, um, state of Utah just rolls off the tongue when I say CIO, but uh, state of Massachusetts uh, actually tried to use um, or require open standards for the way documents were stored. Now there's an important openness issue there in terms of transparency, there's an important archiving issue, all of those kinds of things. And if you remember, Microsoft brought out the long knives. Uh, he didn't last very long. Uh, his, you know, he, he basically got to the point where his life was hell, and he said, this isn't worth it, and he quit. Um, but there is an important issue there which, as a community, we can help foster. And that is, we can help push for open standards in government because it's the right thing for government to do. And people like the CIO of Massachusetts need as much support as they can get. I've been on the wrong side of Microsoft, and it can be really, really dangerous. Um, 
you know, the Microsoft is basically a legal department with some programmers attached to it. And um, that's their MO, right? So. so on that note of Microsoft and local communities, I'm involved in my children's school, and my, my mother and my mother-in-law are both teachers, and my mother-in-law comes home last spring and says, someone needs to install PowerPoint 2007 because we're using a new one now. And it seems, you know, and, that, and I know at our school there's this fund for, okay, let's, we have to set aside so much for buying new office licenses every year, but we've got a place and now we're using these for purpose instead and cheaper or whatever. So it's like, and my idea is, well, the, why don't you use open office? And I, I'm yeah. just wondering how. Well, what a, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great point because there are a lot of opportunities to use. Yeah, particularly, particularly when what you're doing is teaching kids to, to write. Yeah. Right? They, could, they could use open office just as well. What I don't, what I don't know, and, and here's something which maybe you guys do, but I, I thought this for a long time, but I have no hard data that would actually save them money. And we can say, oh, it must save money. You don't have to buy licenses. But what's, where's the data? Right? Where's the report that tells them that? The other problem, Bob's got a report. Bob's always got a report. Um, <laughs> the, the, other, the other thing which I would say is that in Utah, where we have such large school districts, it can be really hard to influence their IT policies. Um, smaller school districts... Why not go all the way to zero? I mean, that's, you know, it's not really Yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question, and I think it's one that people in this room could actually start working with their local school districts, that's the question. And you're probably going to have better luck if you attend the South Sam Beach School District than the Alpine School District, just because there's a lot less bureaucratic inertia. Tell you a story, I was um, part of a technology committee that selected grant proposals from school districts to give out state money for technology projects. And I was on it. There were you know, some principals from various schools on it um, and those kinds of people. And we'd get together, we'd review these things, and we'd say, okay, these five get, um, get uh, the money. Well, when you got a proposal from South Sam Pete School District, it generally, like, the assistant superintendent wrote it, and he wrote something like, we want this money so that we can buy this stuff to give students this training in these specific skills. You know, it's very straightforward. We want to give students training to develop specific skills. When you got something from the Alpine School District or the, you know, Granite School District, they actually have professional proposal writers. But there are people on staff that do nothing but write proposals all the day. That's what they do. And it was always very fluffy, full of education speak about, you know, how it's going to raise its steam and, you know, the clouds will turn blue and, you know, everything was, you know, it was, there was nothing specific in it at all. And so the reason I tell you that is you say when you start battling with large school districts, you're likely to run up against the state puff marshmallow man or the amoeba. You're going to push, and it's going to give, and then you're going to let go, and it's going to flop back, and you know you're not going to get much. So, you know, 
is a good question, and I would love to see school districts spend less money on technology because it would be nice if we had a computer for every student rather than a computer for every, you know, one out of every five students or whatever we've got. But we need, we need data. We need to work with the school districts. We need examples. Never. But I, I mean, that, that's probably a little unfair because there certainly are a lot of projects that happen that probably wouldn't happen because there was no budget unless they used open source. But when somebody wants something done and there's budget to do it, the question of what's cheaper probably isn't always up front. You know, now, now, if open source could come in with a proposal on a, on a bid, it might. But usually, by that time, open source has already been discounted, and we're going after a vendor-supplied solution. So, um, at how much um, money the state spends managing licenses. Not, not, not on the licenses, but you know, when you've got 18,000 office licenses and 18,000 or 20,000 Windows licenses and you, go, you, know, you keep going and now you've got to be able to prove that you've got all of those licenses, it actually takes a lot of people's time to manage all of that. So it's a different, a different issue. There's overhead involved there. Ten percent of the cost to do the employee portal is open source. Yeah, so that that's my point. I mean, I think there are projects that just wouldn't happen because there isn't budget. Budget, but if somebody came up with the idea of the employee portal and said it's going to cost 1.3 million, and it gets in the budget as a line item, and 1.3 million dollars gets approved for it, nobody's then going to say, well, gee, how can we do it for 120? And that, at that point, that decision's already been made. It's gone. So. Yeah, that's true. There's definitely a comfort factor. Now, now, 
the you know people you know do accounting and have tons of um, Excel macros may have some legitimate pushback on that, but for most people they can they can do just fine with open office. But there is a couple of factors, definitely. My dad just recently upgraded his computer and um, he was having problems with the latest version of Word opening some older documents of his. So instead of installing Word and telling him that you know, I just I didn't tell him. I just installed OpenOffice and said, okay, now it opens your documents, and he was happy with that. <laughs> so I think a lot of that perception doesn't even need to be informed. Um, you know, I, I'll confess that the problem I have with OpenOffice is the documents that come in that I lose formatting on still, um, and I have to email them back and say, can you send me a PDF? Um, I had that just happen today. Um, so it's it's still not quite there, but I I think for the majority of people's use, it's does a great job. Uh, well, uh, let me let me add something about what Phil said about change Congress. The fourth one that Phil wasn't talk, uh, Phil forgot was um, you can only take donations from individuals, and those those individuals can't be lobbyists. Um, but does an, another side effect is that you can't take money from PACs. Um, and if you look at uh, any incumbent congressman, you'll see about ninety percent of their current campaign funds come from PACs. So when a somebody decides to run for office on a, on a federal level, they think, oh boy, I've got to take money from PACs because look how much their money, how much money they're getting. Um, they're betting on the horse that's already winning. Um, they're not going to give money to the, the challenger. And, and, and so like I was debating whether I should take money from PACs at the start, and it's an easy pledge to sign on to next time because I got about $10,000 in PAC money. Um, and some of that PAC money I wish I hadn't taken because I, you know, I was thinking, boy, if I don't take it, I'm not going to be able to pay salaries and things like that. But in the end, I could have done without it. Yeah. Well, there's one area that I would disagree on, Phil, with in that area, that's easy for elected officials to adopt and it really streamlined things for me in my campaign. And that's the issue of calendaring. Um, I set up a Google calendar. My entire staff could read it. I could read it from anywhere. And the public could read it. And I think that if you see a, a congressman, a congressperson, um, having a meeting with ExxonMobil, and then three days later writing some legislation that has to deal with ExxonMobil and what they do, um, there's a little bit of a connection that goes on there. And I have uh, Chris Cannon, while he was, uh, well, I guess he's still in office, but he's, he's tried to take a very advanced approach in, to some of these uh, transparency issues. And I kept asking him, this is the one thing your office can do uh, that will set, put you ahead of all the rest, and he still would not accept it. Now, some of them may say security concerns. You know, I don't want people to know my schedule because, you know, some could come out with a gun. Well, publish your calendar retroactively. Uh, tell us what you did yesterday. Um, tell us who you met with yesterday. Uh, but it, from my point of view, it really made things a lot easier. And it, it, there's so many good, you know, it's not only Google now, but, uh, you know, we use Zimbra calendaring in our office. There's so many good calendaring products out there now um, that connect to your phone and do everything else. Uh, it really does make your life easier. And publishing them is just one extra step.
Registration cleared out the vandals, but it, it, again, it really cut down on the participation. Uh, what I noticed about people that would come in and spew some rhetoric is that myself or other people in participating on the wiki would ask them to justify their rhetoric, and we wouldn't get any response. Uh, with with Wikipedia or any wiki, I would argue the the cream floats to the top. The good ideas stand out and uh, they are taken and expanded upon while the bad ideas just sink to the bottom. So you can have 10,000 people lobbying for the same idea, but if they all come in and they're repeatedly posting the same idea, it's pretty obvious. But you can have one person with a really good idea that overrides all those, those the majority and their idea rises to the top. Um, I took that on a couple of issues and, and went out on the trail with them, and those weren't ideas that came from me or my staff or anybody that was advising, advising me, they came from Americans. I'd agree with you 100% on the voting machines issue. I, this is, I was really disappointed the way mo the voting machine uh, debate went in Utah because I think there were some very capable people, um, both from the University of Utah and advocates of open source software, saying, look, we can do this and show the rest of the nation how it should be done. And they were shut out, in my opinion. Um, I think it should be open. I think it should be on paper. I, in my opinion, it should be optical scan. Um, and you know, mark the box. Um, the the thing that we do in America is we try to make things way more complex than it really is. The the story I've heard about Canada is they have national elections. Um, they decentralize their counting, so like everything doesn't come into the county; it's actually counted at the the precinct, and they're able to count with check marks on paper everything in four hours. Um, so I think we try and make things a little too complex, um, and maybe we don't even need technology at all in our voting system. Um, on the other hand, mandating open source, you know, I haven't taken it from the government perspective like Phil has, but I have a, a friend who uh, went through the Department of Defense, worked at the Pentagon for about 10 years, and now he works with NATO, and he's... Um, as Republican as you can get, Biden-wall Republican. So we have a lot of interesting conversations over email. But the one thing he continually repeats to me is, when you get in, please do something about Windows on my desktop. Because he, can, he cannot stand it. And it's really debilitating in a lot of ways um, in, a, in a lot of governmental departments. I look at some of the um, Governments around the world, um, Munich is a good example, Brazil is another, who are starting to adopt Linux to uh, run their governments on, and they seem to be doing an okay job. So I think there's something we can model off there. Um, but the Microsoft pressure, I, I can imagine, is immense. And uh, how we fight back against that is just getting people in that, in, in my opinion, aren't afraid of Microsoft.
we'll get Phil's response to that then. Um, so, kind of two different questions. Uh, one, mandating um, open source, and then the second one is mandating open source elections or what's up with elections. Uh, on mandating open source in general, I think my personal philosophy would run more libertarian in that regard, that as soon as you mandate something like that, what you've just done is given it an excuse to not perform. Um, I don't think there's any reason why open source can't win on its own merits without being mandated. That, that it has enough good about it that government can make the right decision about it, particularly if we all get involved and help. And you know, there's a lot of examples of that happening. Now, you know, I gave you the Microsoft story. There's also some you know, pressure on the other side. But, but I think it can win on its merits. We don't have to mandate it. As for elections, um, I think that philosophically I would um, be very close to Pete when it comes to where we ought to be with elections in terms of, of the technology we use. Um, I have been involved enough in it, not when I was CIO, but since, to understand that there are actually a lot of moving parts there. And I really feel sympathy for people like Gary Herbert the lieutenant governor and others who kind of stepped into this problem. Uh, you know, they, the current administration in Utah came into office halfway through this decision um, after a federal mandate that said you will have these kinds of voting machines. And basically, there were two choices, optical scan or, or the DRE, the direct recording equipment, you know, basically a computer with a flash card in it. Um, and you know, I think I think that it's very hard for people who are not technical at all, who have been used to run, but have been used to running elections, and understand the security concerns of an election. And these people aren't stupid. They are. They've been running elections for years. They understand how to run elections. They understand that the old system wasn't perfect and it made mistakes. What they don't get. And what's very hard for them to understand, even after lots of discussion, is that when you put a computer in the mix, it becomes a different security concern. It's not that they're stupid. It's that they know that the old system wasn't perfect. It had lots of errors, too. It's just that nobody knew about it. What they don't understand is that there is not, is that now we've introduced a way for systematic errors to happen, not just very visible malicious errors or, or other things. Most of the solutions that have been put in place, even the things like paper trail audits, um, are actually pretty ineffective. If you have an election which involves as many votes as are cast in a typical congressional district, you can do audits on a reasonable number of machines and catch even um, intended malice. But when you get down to the level of a house seat, a state house seat, you have to audit about 70% of the actual ballots in order to know with a statistical certainty, a reasonable statistical certainty, that there was no problem with the election. So audits don't solve the problem. So I think we do have a real integrity problem with our election. Now, on the other side, um, talk to your grandma about 
was when she went and used the DRE equipment. I'll bet she loved it. Uh, it's so much nicer than pushing the stylus through the thing. People understand it better. So one of the things that's happened is we probably have fewer voter errors now than we did before. So we have made a trade-off. We have introduced security concerns, which all of us in this room understand and almost no elected officials understand. And what they see is fewer voter, voter errors, people are happy, that's the message that they're getting back. Um, you know, there have been some problems with the Diebold equipment in Ohio. Uh, I know that that isn't being ignored, but it is, it's a very complicated issue. Now, as for the question of open source, um, as far as I know, there is an open source voting system project that came out of Australia. I don't know of anywhere that it's been tested in the large. Maybe you guys know. about other projects. Like I said, the only one I know about is the one in Australia. I don't know where that's gone. I don't know that it's ever been used in a large-scale election. So, so that's kind of the status. Now, um, let, let, me, let me kind of finish the election, at least my comments on the election with this. The key problem with using DRE equipment for elections is if it undermines the confidence in the election. At this point, the only people who don't have any confidence in it are people like us. Your mom has more confidence in the election because for them it seems better. So, so it actually has probably increased confidence in the election system for most people. At some point there could be a disaster and that will change. And that's the real danger, is that there is a potential disaster looming which could undermine confidence in the voting system. Um, but Rebuttal, Pete. <laughs> yeah, so kind of the final thing, um, just before we do go and just kind of leave it for questions until we actually start filtering out because some of us do need to get to the other classes. But I think that the big thing we really want to take from here is please get involved no matter what your party affiliation or what level of government you care about. But like Phil said, really focus on your local government. That's what's going to affect you the most. That's what matters. Please get in there, talk about open source technology, offer what you can do to help. Get, use the community because all the different loves, like we here at UTSC try and do is represent the community that's available, whether it's a lug, a special interest group. All of us want to help. Let's get involved. Let's do what we can to help with the technology as well as the accountability, the introspection into politics. So I hope we can all take that. So those are questions, and we'll just pass this along. Anyone? You, you both mentioned um, transparency and the use of open source in government and those kinds of things. 
I work for a defense contractor, and we run into places where regulations require us to have a commercial next to throttle if something goes wrong. Are there, and then there's a kind of people, have you run into regu regulatory restrictions on email or sending messages on? And also regulatory restrictions on using things that improve transparency. Like there was a movement a little back, a little while back to let the federal legislation use Twitter. And people were Twittering some message all over saying, please let us come to people's Twitter. Are, are there regulatory restrictions that you've seen that, that govern both this transparency and the use of open source? And if you have, do you know of any of the reasons behind it? Is, is it just somebody wanting somebody to strangle, or is, it, is there something more to it? I'm not familiar with any state restrictions. Bob, do you know of any state?
Maybe. I don't know. Uh, so I, I argue that there's very little um, reason why they shouldn't be completely open, uh, even though it may be a headache. You know, uh, if, if you've got somebody working on your yard, you want to know what they're doing, and those people are our employees, too. Caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.